The scripture reading this afternoon will be from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. John 2, 13 through 21. Now the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who had sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the, so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for being out tonight. It's definitely a great afternoon to be home taking a nap. So appreciate the uh, intentional choice to be here today and to to worship. Thank you, Jeremy, for leading those songs and to look at the Word of God. Uh, we're going to continue. Two weeks ago, we, we began a, a study on how to study with someone who is unfamiliar with the gospel, unfamiliar with the Bible, and we talked about how the Bible is God's word how the Bible is complete and how we should not add or take away from the Bible. That is a, a foundational element before you begin to study, that you understand that this is going to be our standard, this is going to be our source. The next thing I want to talk about is the story of the Bible. And that might seem like a lot to take in or a lot to teach at first, but when you realize that this Bible, it's, it's 66 books and it covers 15 or 1600 years of history, uh, it, it can be a little daunting, right? Um, the New King James Version has 770,000 words. And I know that if it was a, a different book series that maybe you're very passionate about, you would tell the person, hey, start on book one and enjoy the journey. And, you know, check in with me as you read it. And it's going to be fun. And, and I can't wait until, to hear about the plot twists and that sort of thing, right? But this is something that is different. Because let's say you're reading a seven book series and in book six is something that could save that person's life. Well, you're going to tell them you need to start with book six. That's right where you need to go. But in order for you to understand book six, I need to give you a, a quick overview of the rest of the series so that you understand what's going on. You know, if, uh, you know, Dennis mentioned uh, The Lord of the Rings. If he said, hey, you start with book three, that's fine if that's what's most critical for the person. But um, you're going to want to go ahead and explain who, uh, who Frodo is, right? Or Bilbo, I always get them mixed up. But, um, now, on one hand, this is daunting to someone that, that is unfamiliar with it because uh, it is about 57 hours of reading. But uh, I did look at some other things. Um, the single book, War and Peace, has almost as many words. Um, some of the, there's a, a series of books called Harry Potter. You may have heard of them. They're well over a million words, and those have sold over 500 million books. So this shouldn't be intimidating, but it is a matter maybe of priority. So you want to definitely 
you know, start with, with the Gospels. You want to get to what is most critical. But I think in order to do that, it is very helpful to begin with, to the person you're talking to, to look at the big picture of the Bible. And this is very helpful for me, even having come up in the church, to understand the framework and the context. Because everything else that you study is going to be about this one story. It all ties into this one story. So, like I said, where do you start? I would start with the gospel, maybe Mark. It's nice and short. You get in there with a big impact because that's where you find the, the life-saving and the soul-saving information. It's, it's most critical, but you want to help them to understand. So last week we set some groundwork. This week we're going to zoom out and look at the big picture, the frame and the context for what we're speaking. And again, I'm going to rely heavily on some scripture. I did uh, print out a little slip-up uh, that's on the table again. Not that I think that what I'm presenting is of great value, but, but this is of great value. This is the word of God, and I want uh, you to feel like you're equipped should you be inclined to, to, to be in this situation. That's what I want us to feel confident as we might be able to approach someone. Um, and so that's what's important. You have those scriptures. The way that you frame it in context, it would, would be something that you would give to that discussion. So let's, let's begin. What is the Bible about? We should all be able to answer that question, but can you say it in a few words? Well, what's it about? Well, let's see. It starts with, I mean, where do you start? Where do you begin? Well, I think a good place to begin is right in the beginning. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to turn along in the Bible to each of our scriptures. So I hope that you take the opportunity to as well. Um, get that sense of what that is to turn along with somebody and to, to be together, read together with them. Uh, and I'm reading out of the, the ESV today, the English Standard Version. And in, in chapter 3, you're going back to the beginning of the story. You're going back to the beginning of time. You're going back to the beginning of creation. And God has just made this wonderful thing. And he said, it is good. And after each day of creation, he said, it is good. Except day 6, and after he created man, he said, it is very good. And then in chapter 3, you know, we haven't been going along very long in the story. We're going to have a problem. And that's what we're wanting to understand here. What is the problem? What is the issue that is what the story is about? And in chapter 3, let's go with, uh, we'll start at the beginning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat of the tree, uh, trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's interesting that that temptation there that's described, it was good for food, so uh, it was a delight to the eyes, and it would make one wise. I mean, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all wrapped up in one. And the sin is essentially choosing self over God. It's essentially getting your priorities out of whack and deciding self over God. And that's what they did. But did they die? Is, is that what happened? Well, when you go down to verse 23, because somebody might expect when God said you shall surely die, that means they're going to drop over dead. You know, like they, they had some kind of a poison that caused them to perish right away. But in verse 23, it describes, it says, Therefore, 
The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now I'm going to go back to verse 22, which is where I should have started there. It said, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So essentially he had access to eternal life. He had access, full access to God. He was in the presence with God. He walked daily with God. Now because of the choice that was made, because of sin, because of separating, or because of that choice, they experienced a spiritual death. They experienced a separation from God. And that is the problem. That is the problem of mankind. And that is the beginning of, of the entire story of the Bible. What is spiritual death, though? What does that mean? Well, to someone who, without any context, you might describe, well, do you believe that, that when you, you die that something goes on in life? Yes, you know, people tend to understand that pretty, pretty easily. Certainly, if they're understanding, willing to look at the Bible, that there is part of us that continues after death. Well, and that is your soul. And your soul is something that is created by God. And that spiritual death means that that soul is separated from God. Let's describe that a little bit more. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 59. Because we need... These are kind of big ideas. The difference between spiritual and physical. Because these things are so closely knit, yet, yet we need to understand um, their differences. And in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, and this is a verse that... Um, it's important to understand, or important to be able to refer to, because it helps us to understand what sin is. We read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin doesn't lessen what God is capable of. His hands and his ears are capable. And we know specifically by what's described here that his hands and his ears are pointed towards you. Yet what you have done, this sin is to separate. It causes a chasm between you and God. And it's not that what you have done has necessarily made God angry. It's that what you have done has put a separation between you and him. He is holy and good and pure. And you have decided to be unpure by choosing self over right. And that has made a separation. So the entire story of the Bible is about the sin problem and recognizing how can I get back to where God is? Because in God's perfect creation, it was man and it was God together in a garden. And that, that was what was designed and desired. And that is ultimately what we're going to want to hope to achieve. And I think it's very important to understand that God wants to live with his people. You're like, well, is this something that helps us get to the end of the story? It's something that's very helpful for us to understand the story because this is gonna tie into everything that you read, that God wants to live with his people. We see that in Genesis right off the bat there, didn't we? that God desired to be with his people. He desired to, to commune with them and to be in their presence. Let's establish this point a little bit. Let's go to Exodus chapter 25. And Exodus is a 
really beautiful book when you understand or, or think about, especially as a Christian looking back and understanding, that it's all about God desiring the people. God wanting people to be his. God wanting to, to have someone to have no uh, obstacle between his love and these people. Exodus 25. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, it says, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. What he's talking about here is the tabernacle. They had come out of Egypt. They had come out with, under the high hand of God. They had come out from a people who were lowly and enslaved and, and uh, abused, people without full rights, people without full exercise of their free will. And God brought them out in his glory and said, so that you may be my people. And in verse 8, he said, now that they're out, he said, and let them make a sanctuary so I may dwell in their midst. And this is one of their first jobs here is to build this tabernacle. Let's go to uh, chapter 29 of Exodus because that's going to describe a, the similar concept, but he's going to add a little bit of important um, to it. Why did he want them to build that tent? So that he may dwell in their midst. In chapter 29 of Exodus, in verse 45. He said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Here he's actually saying that that's his goal. That's his desire to dwell among the people of Israel, to be their God. That was an element of his being their God is that he be amongst them. But he also says that they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. He's saying, I brought them out so that I could be with them. And that's something that I, I had to ponder for a while. I had to really think about that. Could he not be amongst them in the land of Egypt? Well, he's kind of here saying he brought them out so that he could, so that he might dwell among them. And I don't know that I have the, the, the exact um, precise answer here, but he wanted them to be able to be free. We see this very clearly throughout the story, is that God wants to be chosen by people who choose freely. And these were people who were enslaved. These were people who had a master. He wanted them to have no master, no God, but him. And he wanted them to be able to choose that freely. So here, he, though, he says that he wants to dwell among, among Israel, but he also describes that they must live as God's people to be in his presence. That's the trade-off. I will and desire to be among you. But these laws that he's giving here in Exodus and that he continues to give in Leviticus and otherwise is so that this is what you need to do. This is who you need to be so that we can truly be together. So that we can have the, the intimacy that, that he describes. And this continues on. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8. This concept of God wanting to be amongst the people. Because they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years. They, God took the opportunity to help them to understand that they needed him and they, they should trust in him. And he gave them lesson after lesson because when they came to Canaan, they did not understand how much they needed God. 
or, or should trust in him. And, and on one hand, that seems ghastly, but on the other hand, uh, we struggle with that as well too, don't, don't we? But he spent these 40 years training them and helping them to understand that, that he could trust in him. Then they go into the promised land and they go to uh, what, was, what was meant for them to have. And then uh, they go through a, a few kings and then the King Solomon is able to build a temple. First Kings chapter eight, verse 10 and 11 says, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And this is, it describes the process here of, of making all the vessels, of doing everything that he described just to the pattern and just so. And it says, the priests put the things in the place and they're like, okay, all right. They put the finishing touches on it. They walk through the veil. And when they came out of the holy place, a cloud came down and filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. As soon as that place was ready, as soon as that place was sanctified and ready, he was there. He earnestly desired to be amongst his people. He wanted to be seen by his people. He wanted to be known by his people. He wanted to be among them. And what a, what a humbling thing to think about, that, that God, the creator of the universe, desires to be with his creation, desires to be with us. He desired to be amongst these people who already had grumbled and complained and had so many of these different flaws, yet they're my people. I love them. I want to be amongst them. And that goes for us as well. The problem, though, is let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7, that his desire is, uh, is known, it's, it's clear, Jeremiah chapter 7, which in my little word study there, I found out it's the longest book, I think, by words, a little trivia while we're turning, <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 7, that, that he wants to be amongst his people, yet it's just not as simple as that. It is as simple as that, but unfortunately it's not as clean as that. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12. Now go to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first. And that was where the tabernacle came and ended up. That was where the tabernacle was. Where I, I made my name to dwell at first once they got into the promised land. That, that's where it was settled. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because they, you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And in verse 15, it says, and I will cast you out of my sight and I will cast out all your kinsmen. He said, I left Shiloh. I left the tabernacle and I will leave this temple too. But he describes a little bit about what he tried to do to make it work. And, and uh, Mark, in his lesson some weeks ago, he described that in, in quite vivid detail, God's description of his love for the people of Israel. And was it not perseverant and patient and kind and long-suffering? It was. But this is a critical element to understand in the Bible, that God wants to live with his people. Because as you go through the Old Testament, we see that God wants this. And they will just not do what it takes in order to receive what God wants to have for them. God, he rescued them. He guided them. He loved them. And if you doubt that, like, 
read Deuteronomy. Like, I know it's the whole book, sure, but it's just full of his love for us. Or Romans 8 describes it beautifully. He sent prophets to try to get them to stop the sin. He's like, this is coming between us. This is coming between us. But they just could not orient their hearts on him well enough to stop their sin. They just could not prioritize him. They just couldn't follow that first commandment, have no other God before me, because they struggled with idolatry. They struggled with making themselves their own God. And this is the backdrop for understanding every smaller story. Throughout the Old Testament, when you go and think about Abraham being called out, it's about God wanting to be with people. Jacob wrestling with God and seeing the ladder. God rescuing the enslaved people out of Egypt. God's work to build trust and remove obstacles and build closeness with his people before they enter the promised land. That whole journey and adventure was about God wanting to be able to be with his people and to be with it not just in the loosest of sense, but in the closest of senses. The story of the judges, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth every 40 years. His patience, his continual rescue of them, his continual reaching out with prophets, to beckon his people back. God made every effort to be with his people, to live with his people. But the story of that is, the other part of that story is that man continued to fail in that. That initial question is that the story is, how can we get back to where God is? Well, God wants to get with us, but we continue to fail to get to where he is at. Well, Here's the good news, that Jesus is the solution. Let's go to John chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to be in the New Testament from here on. We cannot be good enough to get to God. It's easy to look at the Israelites and think, oh man, those guys, there they are grumbling again. There they are not trusting God again. I remember in Bible study as a young, as a kid, you know, thinking that they were not, like, how could these guys not get it? They just saw miracles. Well, even Christ said, I could give you a miracle and, and, and you would not believe because miracles don't build faith. Miracles reveal and miracles give an opportunity for faith to grow like the word does, but faith has to be chosen and it has to be acted out. Faith is a work when you think about it being that it's understanding and, and like work it's putting something that is of future value sacrificing now for the future. It's very much like work in that way but people were just failing at that and so in John chapter 1 verse 1 we're going to see the solution here. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And going down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We could not get to God, the same God from Genesis, the same God who wanted to be with the Israelites, so he came to us. There was this separation, and he came to make a way so that we could be together. That's the gift that's going to be given here. In John chapter 2, this is where uh, Dylan read scripture. We see that Jesus is going to build a new temple. And what was a temple? What was the place of the temple, right? It was supposed to be a, a place 
for God to be able to be amongst the presence of his people so that they could come and they could worship him and, and they could be, uh, uh, that, that, that they could know him, that they could uh, fulfill their obligations to him and that a degree of his glory could be recognized by his presence. Yet there just be the fact that he is there amongst them. And let's go ahead and read these verses again. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for the house will consume me. So the Jew said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Before we go there, just take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade in verse 16. Jesus knew the story of the Bible. Okay, he understood this. Imagine people making the Garden of Eden a house of trade. This is where God is wanting to be close and intimate with his people. And they're saying, this is a place where we're going to make money. You understand Christ's passion in this part of the story. In verse 18, And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When he was speaking about the temple of the body, he said, Destroy this temple, this one. They didn't understand that. They thought he was talking about the big one. But he understood a proper or a future temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Christ says that this place has been profaned and always will be because you continue to choose to profane that which is holy and righteous and blessed and a gift. And you're going to just continue to make it earthly and vain and, and ugly. So it's time for a new temple. It, let's go to let's go to First Corinthians chapter three, verse sixteen. Just want to follow up with that point while it's fresh. First Corinthians chapter three, verse sixteen, that Christ says that I that you will destroy this temple that this, this temple will be destroyed, but I will build it back in three days. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And in, in chapter 6, verse 19 of, of 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. On one hand, that's jumping ahead, but on the other hand, I want to understand that, that when Christ said, 
that his body would be torn down and raised up in three days, Paul is going to, it describes to us here that we are meant to be that temple. We go back to Acts chapter 2 to understand how that transition is made. Again, recognizing that God wants to live with his people. What does that look like for us? In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter gives this gospel sermon where he condemns the Israelites as those who killed the Son of God. He describes that they, that God reached out to them in the thing that they had been looking forward to for many years because they had been looking forward to the Messiah. And they understood that much. But then what God offered to them, they killed. And they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? And he had already said that, that in, back in verse 21, whoever comes and calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They understood that there was something that needed to be done to call upon the Lord. But give us these details. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Forgiveness of sins and the presence of God is offered here. The gift of salvation, the removal of separation, sin, spiritual death, separation from God are all solved with Christ because of this gift, because of this opportunity to repent and be baptized. It's not change your ways and get wet. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Your sins will be washed away. Your sins will be taken away. The things that is between you and God will be gone. And then as we looked at in 1 Corinthians there, then you can be a temple of the Almighty God. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will have that salvation. And so going back to the idea of where do you begin in a reading, this is why we started in the Gospels, is because... You remember Paul, what did he preach? He preached Christ and him crucified. Okay, that's the most key element. That's what you need to understand. He often went to the synagogues first, but when he talked to the Gentiles, what did he preach? Christ and him crucified. He didn't preach Abraham. He didn't preach Moses. I mean, you get there later, hopefully, but he preached Christ and him crucified. That is the most critical element. All these other things that uh, make, give such wonderful context and depth, but here is the solution. Christ and him crucified. Let's look in Ephesians chapter 2. One more, um, one more verse on this, 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 uh, this point that Jesus is solution. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. I think we're going to skip around a little bit. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's go down to verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I was like, well, didn't 1 Corinthians you say that we are the temple? But here it's kind of saying we're together, cumulatively, corporately being built into the temple. Which one is it? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's, it's both. How is this being described here is Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. And that we are being made into stones. And how are we being made into those stones? By being the temple ourselves. By individually, which is all we have control of, acting as the temple of God. And what does the temple do? It glorifies God. It shows God to the world. It lets the character of God be seen. That is what we ought to be doing. It is filled with the holiness of God. And together, we are able to make a, to grow and to be joined into what Christ is in, what the apostles have done, and make a whole structure that glorifies him into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are meant to be made into these stones to have a holy dwelling place, a, a garden on earth, a place where God is. And so some of the songs that we sing about being in the presence of God, sometimes it seems, well, he's, he's busy or, you know, is, is he here right now? Well, he really wants to be. That's exactly what he wants to do. Uh, when we sing about him being in our midst, that is what he earnestly desires to do. So let's make sure that we're doing what we can to let him be in our presence as he so desires to be. Let's live that way as best we can. He does not expect perfection, but he does expect us to orient our minds and hearts towards him in such a way that we put him first and that we act on that as best as we can. There's a difference between a mistake and a choice of, of who you are and what you will be. Mistakes are easily washed away. Us choosing not to orient ourselves on him is what rebuilds that separation. And I, I use that word orient, I think, a couple of times, and it, maybe it seems weird, but I... When, when sin is missing the mark or missing the goal, that's what that is. is it's, it's, it's orienting ourselves on this world or towards ourselves or our desires or all these other things instead of him. If we focus on him, then, then, then sin is not a problem. So I forgot to put that slide there. <laughs> but that's good. This is great because any story has this, this narrative arc. Can you see that? Okay. And if, if, um, if, if you were to put the Bible on this page, the, the setup is just really the creation story. The, the inciting incident would be the, the, the sin in, in, in the Garden of Eden, is the, the separation between God and man. And this traditional story arc has many, there's different terms, but they ultimately come out the same. And Mark, you can fill me in on some of these later, but... The rising action is what builds because of the incident. So that is all of essentially the Old Testament. The climax is Christ has come. The, the moment of what the story is about, the climax of Christ has come, the success or the failure, 
of that climax. Did it have success? The, the New Testament, the apostles, uh, the book of Acts, the letters that were written to the church, absolutely. So where are we? We're right here. This, this is a success. The plan was a success, but it can be a failure. It depends on what we choose. There's this, this is where we are in the story. We are a part of the story. This isn't a book that we are not a part of. This is a book that we are in the middle of because there is prophecy. Resolution is something that we need to look forward to. What is the end of the story? Just a couple of verses here. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 describes the end of the story because if this is a story about God wanting to be with his people, if this is a story about the separation of God uh, from his people and Christ being the means of bridging that connection, First Thess no, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it's going to play hard to get. If this is that story, then what is the end result of the options that are presented? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We read, Dealing out retribution to those who do not go know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. The problem is that if we continue to not know God and not obey the gospel, then we will continue to be separated from God. That place is hell. And, and it's not devils with pitchforks. It's, you know, there's descriptions of it being a, a place of suffering. But what is it? It is separation from God for all of eternity. Eternal destruction away from the presence of God, away from the glory of his power. He's done what he can to bridge that gap. Which one do we choose? Do we choose because if we choose to continue to be separated from him in this life, we will be separated from him for all eternity. That will be sealed at death. Or let's go to Revelation chapter 22. And I like when things come together because we started in, in Genesis chapter 3. And now we're going to go to Revelation chapter 22. The beginning and the end of the Bible. And you're going to notice some of the, the terms here are going to sound familiar. Revelation chapter 22, right in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of the God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and on his name, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the beginning, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is what Adam and Eve partook, and that is what we saw the Israelites partake in. They didn't just take one fruit. They got them all, you know. That is the struggle that we have had is partaking of that fruit. But here, in this place, there will only be the tree of life in the presence of God. They will need 
no light or lamp, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. We'll be in the presence of God. It started in Eden, it ends with an Eden. Forever in the presence of God because of Jesus. That's the end of the story. But what's the resolution of the story? Well, that's up to you. That's up to me. How are we going to live that out? And last verse we're going to look at is in Revelation chapter 3. Because heaven and hell are such big ideas. And we can understand how they fit in the story. But I just want to read one more verse to show that we are in that story. And, well, this is, these, are, these are some letters written to the churches. Uh, and it's like, well, is that, is that to me? Who is, who is he speaking to here? Well, he's speaking to, to New Testament Christians. He's speaking to churches as they were trying to follow him. They weren't doing it perfectly. He wrote seven different letters. But he also paints this little story here. And it's to the church of Laodicea. They were people who struggled with being lukewarm, neither hot or cold. And that means that they, they understood. They knew it was right. And they had works, but they didn't realize that by not putting him first, in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I feel rich by what I have been given, by what I have been blessed, by the field that was of great treasure. And I feel like I went after that treasure, as, as, as Christ describes it in the parable. But did I really sacrifice? Because these people are struggling with that. And he counsels them, and he says, be open. He says in verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Again, this is speaking to Christians. He says this next verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So when Christ was killed and paid the ultimate price, and then he returned gloriously to his father and sat down at the right hand of God. Here he's saying, just as I sat down and conquered, he said, I will grant with you to sit right with me. But what do you have to do to do that? He says, I stand at the door and knock. He's speaking to Christians here, saying, you know, but you're not doing. Your heart has other things in it. He's outside knocking. And what did Christ do? Well, and what does he want to do? He wants to come in there. He wants to commune with you. He wants to eat with you. He wants to share a meal. He wants to, to share your struggles, to share the sustenance of life. A meal is a powerful thing, and, and we do that every Sunday, and it's not a small thing. But what did he do in Luke chapter 2? We didn't quite read that part, but what did he do? He fashioned whips. He drove everything out, because this is my father's house. How dare you defile it? with your trade and your greed and your profanity. What he's saying here, if anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. But he's not just going to come in and have a seat. What opening that door means, he's going to come in 
and you have to work with him. You will make the whip with him. Drive out the greed and the profanity and the worldliness and the foolishness and all those things that you've let live in your heart, let live in your temple. He wants to come in and drive everything out and leave nothing there but him and make it the perfect place for his father to dwell so that you can dwell with him for eternity. And these are words to Christians. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So our invitation song that Jeremy picked out, I'm going to come right back here, is Hark the Gentle Voice. And I would ask you, brothers and sisters, to hark the gentle voice. This is an invitation song, but it's not just to people who need to hear about salvation. It is also for us as Christians who need to take that moment and ask for you, brothers and sisters, help me. I have let other things fill in my heart. Help me to open that door to Christ so that he might drive out those other things. I'm going to go back to that last slide, maybe. This is a simple summary, I say simple, of what I have described. I've said a lot of words. I've talked for 35, 40 minutes. But there's just a handful of scriptures. This is something that you can describe. This is something that you can teach. You can go to these scriptures and you can say, well, there was a problem, and that problem is sin. But God wants to live with his people. He wanted it so much that he tried hard, but he showed what that ended up with in the New Old Testament. So he came to us. He bridged the gap. He did all that he could do. He came to earth. Jesus is that solution. And now he wants that solution for you. That's the story of the Bible. That's what it's all about. You can teach that lesson. And if you'd like my notes, I'd be happy to text or email those to you. But uh, the next lesson is going to be on looking at if Jesus is a solution, how is that? How is that next step made? I hope you'll be here for that. Um, but at this time, again, I want to extend that invitation, brothers and sisters, to listen to the voice of Jesus. He extends it. He wants to be fully in your heart and let Christ dwell in you and let God dwell in you as fully and richly as he can in this life so that we can obtain that eternal home with him in heaven one day. If we can help you with either thing, then come forward now while we stand and sing this song.